As we prepare to hear the message, let's say together a prayer as we read from the word. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Our scripture reading is from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and wondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child, will be, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's great to be with you, um, whatever with us looks like right now. You know that it's different, and for many of us, it feels distant, it feels foreign, it feels uncertain. We just want you to know, as has been said many times already today, that we miss one another greatly. And that to feel those feelings is a very human thing, a very necessary thing, because it reminds us who we were created to be. Like Romans said, we weren't created to live in isolation, but in community. So as we begin this morning, diving into the Word, we want to thank our artists and residents. Uh, Lisa's been doing these awesome pictures every week. We have our fourth one here uh, that I think will go up on the screen, um, that we just want to highlight that this has been a new thing for us as a church, trying to figure out how to integrate uh, the Word and art in a, in a new and innovative way, and so we appreciate um, Lisa just, just stepping in and run, running with this. So look, look for more of this, hopefully, in the future. If you'd like to see more of these, they'll be up before and after the service, but also in our newsletter. You can, uh, you can look at them in more detail. Well, everyone, this passage is challenging for many reasons. Challenging as we uh, enter into this practice of lectionary preaching, as Pastor Stu has talked before, is that it often pushes us as preachers to enter into texts with which we may not always be most comfortable. This text is particularly challenging for me. For While it may be a surprise to many of you, know that the practice of um, burying a son and raising him is not something with which I'm very familiar with. Um, something that will always, in fact, be very foreign to me and my own experience. And so just for a note, this is for free, you don't have to pay extra for this, but just as I was reading through this passage, I was reminded of the immense responsibility we have 
to read Scripture together. So we can often trick ourselves into thinking that if we just read hard enough, well enough, study enough, that we'll get everything there is to get from the text. But it's texts like this that remind me that I cannot understand this because I will never enter into the experience of Mary. And while Mary's experience is unique, there are certain things that can be understood by people in our community. So in our staff meeting, I was listening eagerly to those that had born children, that had experienced that process of learning that they were pregnant, the joys and fears that come with those sort of moments. So wherever you are this morning, just remember that, that Scripture takes all of us to understand. So as we dive into this passage, there's three themes that I really want us to focus in on. And as this text has been read for generations and preached on for in many, many different ways, know that we in no way, shape, or form attempt to touch on all of those things, but simply hope to follow the Lord's leading for us today. And so there's three themes that I want us to focus on. Does your name mean something? Perhaps you were named after a grandparent, uh, maybe a, a, a family friend. Maybe it was even your parents' favorite book character, somebody that they knew that was famous or significant in their life. Maybe it comes with a story that you've probably heard far too many times to count. And my mom has this practice of calling me every year on my birthday and telling me the story of how my name was to come. And I've heard the story so many times, but it still holds significance for me. While names don't always hold this sort of weight in our time today, in Jewish culture, it's important to remember that names were far from coincidental. Names demonstrated descriptive realities that the bearer could either choose to live into or not. There's also this idea of birth stories. Birth story was a really significant thing in this time. The, the birth story that was given to a person held a, a unique quality because birth stories for famous rulers throughout history served to set a tone for what sort of person they were to be and how they were to rule. It was very common for leaders and rulers of the day to even claim divine lineage in their own birth story. For instance, Caesar Augustus claimed to be a son of God, had it printed on coins so that nobody would forget. Alexander the Great was said to be the son of Zeus, divinely appointed to rule over the world. So what's significant about the story of Christ's birth is not so much the story in itself, but the way that that story is different from the countless other birth stories of the day. For rulers such as Caesar, the divine lineage, as he was a son of God by his own understanding, gave a sort of justification for world-dominating action. So as we read through this story today, let's stay attentive first to who Christ is, and second to how Christ will rule this world and how it might be different than the stories of the day. We should also note that birth stories perk up our ears as readers to be attentive to something new, a sort of inbreaking, a moment in history when everything would be changed. There's a third theme, and it's this character of Mary. Mary holds a particular significance for the church that I wrestle with today that I hold generations of tension and argument and discussion in this message today, we recognize for us in the Protestant tradition, Mary often functions simply as an avenue to get to the birth of Christ. Sometimes we use her character to become an identity marker as to how we are different 
from our brothers and sisters in other traditions. However, I would encourage us this morning. I would ask that we open our hearts to the story of a young Jewish girl putting aside all other things over which we often argue and perhaps ask that God might give us something new today. This story opens up in probably the most unlikely of all places. This angel named Gabriel comes to speak in a town called Nazareth, in a place known as Galilee, that resided in a small strip of land we know to be Israel. This nation had a long and rich history. They were deeply steeped in their stories of Exodus, the stories that their their mothers and fathers had told them for generations of a time when God had liberated them from slavery. But in near history, their experience had been quite the opposite. In the span of 700 years, they had come to be conquered by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and then the Romans. While the Exodus was still a fixture on their history, 700 years they had been living by somebody else's story. A story that told them that they were oppressed, that they were worthless, that they were at the bottom of the hierarchy. A story that took advantage of them and kicked them to the margins. A story that was dominated by various leaders, all in fact claiming to do it in the name of God. These stories portrayed God to be one of chaos and conquering. So in this unlikely place, we come to Mary, an ordinary girl in the middle of living according to Jewish custom. She was betrothed, about to enter into this new phase of life, living according to what custom told her was expected of her. But we must note something significant about Mary. Mary is a Greek translation of her Jewish name, which was Miriam. This name, Miriam, meant something for the Jewish people. Names held weight, expectation, and in this case held a longing for something. After 700 years of being ruled by other people, this girl holds the name of one of the leaders of Israel's liberation from Egypt. Miriam, found in Exodus chapter 15, upon crossing the Red Sea, was the one who led Israel in the song of praise that ushered in a new era of allegiance to Yahweh. The one who could make them into a different sort of people. So for Mary to hold this name for so many generations, following after years of oppression, reflected something important about this community. While one might expect this people to be worn down, and surely many of them were, This name showcases a glimmer of hope that has yet to be extinguished for these people. However small the light might be, this name has endured all these years. And while Mary is given this name, it carries an expectation for her from her community that God would liberate them once again. Do we have stories like these in our history? Stories that remind us of the faithfulness of God. Stories that we've heard from our fathers, our mothers, our grandparents, friends and family from days past. Stories of the past that are so significant that they continue to spur us along, even in moments of hopelessness. I have stories like that. 
The angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. We can imagine for a moment that Mary would have heard these words with a certain emotion, with a full range of emotions. See, a visit from the divine, no matter what the subject was to be, bestowed a certain importance upon the one being visited. But I wonder if Mary felt this way about herself. Perhaps this opening statement reflects a disbelief from Mary of her own importance in this story. Do we think that Mary still believed in her name? Did perhaps Mary cease to believe in the liberating God that had once brought them out of Egypt across the Red Sea? Did Mary struggle to understand that God would ever come to liberate them again? Surely Mary was thinking, but God, you have picked the wrong person. As she looked over her shoulder, wondering who else might be behind her, there's an expectation floating around in this passage. Perhaps an expectation put upon by others, or maybe one Mary put upon herself. And while Mary may no longer believe in the story behind her name, this divine message shows that surely God still believes. That God has not forgotten about God's people When God takes the initiative as shown in this story, it is always a matter of love. Love which will care for us, even in the moments or places where we least expect it. We can often understand God in this way, where we are led to think that leading unassuming lives in unassuming places might isolate us from the extraordinary. But this story showcases quite the opposite, that those are exactly the places where God often resides. Skipping to verse 29, Mary's response is fascinating for us. It says she was perplexed. While I think we often gloss over this story, and if you don't know what I mean, just Google the Annunciation, and many of the portraits portray a Mary that is far different from what I believe was actually captured in this story. While we often gloss over it, highlighting Mary's eventual humble response at the end, which we'll get to, it's worth noting the transformation that happens in her in these 12 verses. Other scripture translations use the word troubled or agitated, with the original translation even adding an emphasis, saying that she was agitated greatly. Wouldn't you? If the divine had come down in a moment of surely disbelief that this God would ever come again, came to you and said, greetings, favored one. Surely you would feel the same way. I know I would. See, Mary has been visited by the divine messenger, and while this might bring feelings of hope and new life, there would also be worry. Worry from this young Jewish girl who bore the name of one of the leaders of Israel's liberation that she could not or would not rise to the occasion. Perhaps we have at times felt this worry, worry that we could not live faithfully according to God's word, that perhaps where God was calling us was too much, too great, maybe even impossible. Perhaps there's another element to the worry of this passage. In the celebration of the Christmas visitation that we look forward to each and every year, we often long for the lights, the songs, the family, and the traditions And while these things hold an important place in our Christmas celebrations, we must also acknowledge that a visit from the divine does not come without purpose. In fact, it often comes to seek disruption 
It comes to disrupt our lives and open our eyes to the things that perhaps might be pulling us away from God. So it is in this Christmas visitation to Mary that there is some worry. The angel says, you will bear a son. And here's the moment where the story gets really interesting. It's worth a pause to reflect on Mary's experience up until this point. Not only has she been visited by the divine, but now she is told that she will engage in something that will surely change the trajectory of her life. That will surely change the way that her community receives her. Maybe that her parents receive her. Perhaps she's worried that even her soon-to-be husband would receive her differently. That there's all these emotions wrapped up in this passage that we could take all morning talking about, but let us just sit with Mary for a moment, realizing that the task that has been given to her would have gone above and beyond any expectation that she would have ever had for herself. The angel goes on to describe this child and says, He will be great. This Christ, this child who comes from the divine, is to be a king. A king much like the ones with whom Israel was familiar. This king was described as a son of God like the other kings that they were familiar with. However, this son of God, this one whom we worship that we preach about on a yearly basis would be a son of God that would not live for oppression, but would live for justice and mercy. Like we said earlier, it's worth noting the way that Christ's birth is different and the births of those other oppressive rulers of the day. The angel goes on to say that he will reign over the house of Jacob. A fascinating phrase that turns our minds back to the Jewish story once again. A story that would have shaped their community much like the Exodus. This story of Jacob is one of disobedience. One of underhandedness. One of unfaithfulness. Perhaps we are familiar with stories as these. Stories where we have lost hope that anything good could come next. But the story of Jacob does not end there, but tells the reader of a brother who was surely lost as he had cheated every one of his family members out of something that he did not deserve. But this brother who was lost tells the story of him finding himself once again and being made new. This king... This Christ child, this son of God, instead invites them to receive God's transformative grace, not for his own sake, but for the sake of those that need it most. The angel goes on to say, of his kingdom there will be no end. This phrase delivers a whole realm of economic, political, and social realities regarding Christ's kingdom, which again could take all morning, but for us today, we simply affirm this. That the reign of this Christ, the reign of this ruler, the reign of this king would not just be isolated to one place, one experience, one moment in time, but would be something that would expand to all the areas of our world. It is one that breaks into all spaces, even the ones that we might have paused over, the places we might have considered unassuming, insignificant, or perhaps even beyond God's grace. To pray for an advent of this king is to prepare our hearts for a disruption and a renewal in not just some, but all aspects of our lives. 
perhaps there are places in our lives that we have long forgotten. Places of hurt. Places where the pain is too deep. Places where the distrust is too overwhelming. Places into which we have stopped inviting God to reside because we have long lost hope that anything good would ever come out of it. Places where we have lost hope. Do we resonate with these feelings as we look towards a holiday celebration that surely looks different than any of us could have ever imagined? These feelings that God's messenger says to, to Mary go on to say, Do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. The advent of this king, the arrival of this Messiah, invites us to release the things that we believe that lead us to believe anything but this, that God's residing presence in the world has a power to renew all hearts and all minds. So whether it be worry for our tomorrow, judgment towards our neighbor, or frustration of ourselves, this king seeks to renew it all. This is hardly the sort of good news that we could create on our own. So dare we proclaim that God is breaking in? Dare we proclaim this news that is here to transform not just one, not just two, but all realities of our world? Dare we to proclaim that, knowing that with it, it will invite us to change. It will invite us to release. It will invite us, like this young Jewish girl, to admit that perhaps God is bigger than we have sometimes given God credit. Mary's rebuttal in this moment is very honest, and I appreciate it for that reason. She says, how can this be, since I am a virgin This honest questioning showcases an important reality of our faith. The places where God often calls us are clouded with mystery. They leave us, they lead us to leave the realm of the known for the unknown. They let go of the possible to experience the impossible. They look at the seemingly unable and insignificant and watch God do something that only God can do. So much like in this story, as Mary's rebuttal reflects a very honest and astute observation, how can this be? We pause and wonder, have we perhaps perhaps ever asked that same question of God? How can this be, God? How could your arrival actually transform the pain that is far too deep? How could your arrival actually renew the struggles that are far too real? How could your arrival actually make new the relationships that have been abandoned for far too long? And while these reflections might make us feel trouble once again, as we just reflect on the magnitude of God's ability, we must remember that there is love to be found in the mystery of God. There is love to be found there because God's inhabitants in the world often leads us to places where we cannot rely on our own ability and our own strength, and we have no choice but to lean on the everlasting presence of our Lord. It is here that we become near to God. It is here that Advent is made real for us. 
Gabriel says, for nothing will be impossible with God. A phrase that reminds us of the covenant that God made with Abraham. A covenant that was made in the midst of seemingly impossible circumstances when God had Sarah bear a child in her old age, long beyond years when everybody thought this was possible. So Mary's faithful response, captured beautifully later on in her song, begins with a simple affirmation. Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Mary enters into a space where God's reality takes over and affirms the story of her namesake, Miriam. It is in this posture of humble obedience that Mary and us too will learn to wait on the Lord. It is in this waiting that we learn that it is not just us waiting, but we begin to learn that our God has been patiently waiting for us since the beginning of creation. Patiently waiting for us as a loving parent who wants nothing more for their child than to be the best that they can be. My mother once told me she didn't want me to be the best, but she wanted me to be my best these words that maybe many of you parents would resonate with, that you don't want for your kids to live up to somebody else's expectation, but simply the expectation of God who has created them. But what does Mary's response mean for her? What does it mean to live into this hope of liberation that the name Miriam would incite in all of their minds as they thought back to the Exodus? Surely this is no passive obedience for Mary but rather is a posture that would have challenged Mary's everyday life. One that would continue to call her into unlikely and seemingly impossible circumstances as she not only bore this child, but continued to raise him all the way to the cross. For Mary to say yes to God did not only transform this experience, but would continue to shape her activity each and every day often for the sake of others. Bernard of Clairvaux described Mary as an aqueduct. I love this phrase. Which, having received the fullness of the fountain of the Father, had transmitted it to us, if not as in itself, at least insofar as we could contain it. That Mary became a catalyst and a conduit for what God was doing in the world, and we too, as readers of this story, are invited into the very same. We find much packed into Mary's experience, but we should close reflecting on this. We wonder if Mary had lost power, lost faith in the power of her name. Perhaps she had lost or forgotten the story of liberation. Perhaps she had stopped believing that God could work the impossible in her everyday life. So perhaps the message from the Lord was what she needed to be reminded. For us as the church today, I fear that we too at times can forget our own name, can forget the identity that we have been given, and in turn the mission to which we have been called, the ecclesia, the community, the gathering of saints, this communion of people that are to live differently than the world would have them. To remember our name comes from a humble acknowledgement that God wants to use us. Flawed, broken, insignificant, unlikely characters.
It invites us to stop living off the expectations of others, the expectations of what we should be, how we should act, what we should look like, invites us to put those aside and enter into the expectation of God, which is simply this. Remember who you are. A poem that was famously attributed to St. Teresa says it best like this. Christ has no body but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks compassion on the world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses the world. For Christ has no body on earth but yours. For the church to pray an Advent prayer, to enter into this space where we must once again rely on the incarnation of Jesus, invites us to remember who we are, to remember the stories that shape us, even if they seem far too distant to have any power anymore. We are to be no ordinary community, but instead a community of ordinary people that are led to do the extraordinary led into spaces where we have no option but to rely on God's strength as God does things that people will look upon and say, how can this be? No matter what the circumstance life might bring, we are to be a people that usher in justice and mercy to this king who rules over the houses of the unforgivable, the houses of the Jacobs, the underhanded, and perhaps the unfaithful. A king who offers transformation for all of them and seeks to renew the way that we see the world, that we might stand and say with faith, here I am, a servant of the Lord. As we close and the band comes up to sing a song for us, let us pause and reflect and pray on these words that the Lord has given us today. God, we thank you for using this young, simple Jewish girl in circumstances that are seemingly impossible, seemingly unlikely, God. Thank you for doing something that is far beyond our own imagination. So God, we pray that today, as we head into this new season of unknown, a season that will surely challenge us as we rediscover what it means to be your people, as we rediscover what it means to be the church, God, would you empower us with an imagination that is beyond our own, an imagination that invites you and you alone to be the shaper of our future. God, as we hear voices from all those around us about what we should be doing, about what things should look like, about what we shouldn't be doing, God, would we hastily push them aside and lean to you, for nothing is impossible with you. Amen.